0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Weekend Show, where we discuss big topics that come up as we're reading through the scripture, and we also aim to discuss and answer viewer questions as well. Uh, My name's Corey, if this is your first time here, and I'm joined by my husband, Matlock. Hey, Matlock. How you doing? Doing well. How about (laughs) you?
1: Good, good. We have a good show today. We do. We have a good show. Isaiah 15 to 35, if you've read it, happy you did, because we got questions pertaining to that. Unlike the last week, which we didn't have too many questions pertaining to it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But, you know, wisdom literature is kind of like that. Now we've moved on to the prophets, which is really, I love the prophets. I really love the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah in particular because they are so intermeshed with, history, uh, and we've got a lot of extra biblical history, so history that's not recorded in the Bible that comes from the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah and directly pertains to what they prophesy about and the history that they're living through. So. I just think it's really interesting. Right. (laughs) Really, really interesting. But today we're going to be talking about the judgment of God. And and if God continues to judge nations in the same way that he did in the Old Testament, we're going to be taking a look at some of the oddities of Isaiah's ministry, like why he preached naked for a time and and, and things of that sort. So lots of good things up on the docket today. Yeah, that's
1: good. So let me open up. Let me open up with a question for you. Yeah. Okay. It's just a Bible question. Okay. It's regarding Moab who is Moab and why are they being destroyed?
0: Uh, Moab okay so what is the
1: significance of all this right basically? right
0: so this pertains to Isaiah 15 and 16 and, and this is not the only time in the Old Testament where Moab is spoken of by a prophet of God but in Isaiah we've got a prophecy against Moab that spans chapter 15 and 16. And Isaiah is mourning the destruction of Moab here. So I guess I, t- to answer those questions, who is Moab? So we know from the book of Genesis that the Moabites are claimed descendants of Lot. Um, so uh, they, we know also from the Bible that the land of Moab was on the eastern side of the Jordan River or the eastern side of the Dead Sea. So a few instances of Moabites popping up in scripture is after the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites pass around the Moabite border. And remember that God didn't allow um, Israel to invade the Moabites at that time because God said, nope, this is their territory that I've given to them leave it alone. Uh, but there is judgment that comes on Moab because of, uh, remember that the king of Moab sends for Balaam, this is Numbers 22. He's nervous that the Israelites are in the land and uh, he, get, he tries to get Balaam to curse Israel. So that whole thing happens. And we see when we trace Israel's history and their interactions with Moab, uh, some of the tribes of Israel settle on the east side of the Jordan River. uh, And specifically, the tribe of Gad lives in and around the territory of Moab, the northern territory of Moab. Uh, Then later on in history, we see Ruth is a Moabites. And so she uh, married into Israel and she became effectually an Israelite when she claimed that at Naomi's God would be her God. So Yahweh would be her God. And we find out that Ruth was an ancestor, a great grandmother of King David. And we know that the Israelites often intermarried with the Moabites sometimes legally like Ruth because she uh, converted to Judaism. She did not keep the gods of the Moabites as her gods, but she converted to Judaism. So that was a lawful intermarriage with Israel. And there were unlawful marriages between Israelites and Moabites. So for example, King Solomon married Moabite women, at least one that we're told of, married lots of women, and we know that he did not require them to convert to uh, to worshiping the God of the Bible because he actually built pagan and um, temples and high places of apostasy for Israel. So lots of interesting things there. Uh, what we know from history about Moab is that they did reside in the area that the Bible says. So east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. But we also learned that their territory was rather fluid. So there wor- there weren't... Um, really solid borders. It was kind of always moving and always changing based off of warfare that was going on. We also know we can insinuate it from the Bible, but we also see it in history um, <clears throat> from the different uh, stellas and, and um, inscriptions that have been found in temples that have been found of the Moabites, that they were a tribal nation, like Israel, which makes sense because the Bible says they were descended from Lot. So tribal nation. Now, okay, so that's a little bit about who they who they were. Yes. Sometimes friends of Israel and Judah, sometimes enemies of Israel and Judah. Like, for example, we have King David actually making an, a, 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 an agreement with the king of the Moabites uh, to have his family live in Moabite territory while uh, Saul was on the hunt for his life. So David wasn't the king yet. He had been anointed king, but he he was still kind of just on the run from King Saul. That makes a lot of sense because David's ancestors, of course, Ruth was a Moabite, so he had Moabite ancestry. Um, yeah. yeah, and we, we also know from archaeology that God, like the God of the Bible, was intermittently worshipped in parts of the Moabite territory. And that's probably because the Israelite tribes over there, especially Gad, had kind of intermingled, right? There was... Um, there, there weren't solid borders. So right. when archeologists are digging this up, they're like, is this a Moabite proper no town? Patrol? Or is this an Israelite right. dadite town? <laughs> like what, what are we what are we doing here? So really interesting, right. but.
1: So kay. Isaiah 15, why are they yes. being destroyed?
0: Why are they being destroyed? So we, we see in here, God finally bringing judgment on Moab essentially for their sin. And I'm trying to find, I think it's in verse In um, chapter 16, it's actually really interesting because we we see the Moabites going to Judah asking for refuge. Right. Right? So it says, make up your mind, Moab says. Render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. So the prophecy is that they're going to be invaded and the Moabites are going to flee. It says... Um, from Selah across the desert to the Mount of Daughter Zion. So to Jerusalem asking for um, refuge. And I believe, right, yeah, here we go. Uh, Isaiah 16, verse six. We have heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance of her conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. Therefore, the Moabites wail, they wail together for Moab, lament and grieve for the raisin cakes of Kirharasheth, the fields of Heshbon wither, the vines of Simba also. So it's their pride and their arrogance. And interestingly, in something called the Mesha Stella, which uh, King Mesha of Moab commissioned to be written, um, it talks about the the political situation that 2 Kings 3 mirrors, where there's this war going on between Northern Israel, Omri and Ahab, and Mesha, king of Moab, and Mesha's father. And in the Moabite stela, King Mesha himself pits Moab's God against Yahweh's God, mm. basically in a one-for-one battle. Right. And he claims that Moab's God wins at this point. And keep in mind that um, Moab's God and Israel's God were being worshipped side by side in Moabite territory and in Israelite territory on the east side of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Dead Sea. So I think what we're seeing here is the decisive outcome of Yahweh versus the Moabite God, specifically because it's linked to the Moabite pride here in Isaiah.
1: Right. Cool. Yeah.
0: All right. That's what I would say. That's good. For that.
1: That's a good answer. I, <laughs> I know na- it's
0: really long. No. I know it kind of gives, but Moab is a really interesting place. That's
1: what, that's what people are here for. They're here for the long, long answer. Long form. Long yeah, form <laughs> answer. That's good. Okay, I got another one for you. Yeah. Shoot. Pertaining to Isaiah 20, verses 1 to 4. Okay. Another Bible question. Yeah. Why did Isaiah preach naked? Right. So, yeah. Was he compelled to preach naked? <laughs> Or was he was he told? Did, did, was to preach he? Just naked? really
0: hot? Is that what you're asking? <laughs>
1: did he have some
0: sort of rash? Yeah, what's go, no, to... just what's
1: going on? That's it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He he was told to preach naked, right? And I right. guess the question is why? Why yes. would God? Why would God humiliate Isaiah in such a way? Because that it goes against our human sensibilities. Yes. It's just intrinsic in us. This is we should be clothed, isn't it? And there's a there. It's shocking that God would have his spokesperson be humiliated in such a way um so isaiah chapter 20 is a prophecy against egypt and cush and during isaiah's time period so isaiah is alive uh, during the time period of uzziah jotham ahaz and hezekiah and in the time period of ahaz but even more so in the time period of hezekiah um there was a, a very heavy reliance on egypt and at that point, Egypt had a Kushite king. So um, Kush is Southern Egypt, today it's in the area of Ethiopia, and there was a whole dynasty of Kushite pharaohs uh, of Egypt. So the fact that this is a prophecy against Egypt and Kush makes a lot of sense because they were, they were the same thing at this point. Um, so it says in the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, so again, the big bad, In the time period of Isaiah and Hezekiah and Hezekiah's father Ahaz is the Assyrian Empire. They are empire building and they are taking over country after country and territory after territory. So in the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon king of Assyria came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it. This is a historical event that we know about now. Um, At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so going around stripped and barefoot. So Isaiah had been delivering his prophecies in public mourning garb. Mm. So if the words of Isaiah weren't enough to make you realize that these were bad messages for judah for israel for the surrounding nations just one look at isaiah would let you know this is not going to be a good prophecy because right. he was wearing the garbs of public mourning. And he
1: he was uh, f- uh familial uh in relations with um royalty
0: oh yes so yeah.
1: this is very it's not like he's poor and decrepit like, it would be very striking.
0: Yes. He like was also Isaiah. married and had children. Yes. Like, his wife is called the prophetess, and then he has these children. And imagine this is your dad now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine, sure. guys. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of levels. So, okay, so then God has Isaiah completely stripped down naked. And what this would have been a sign of, which the rest of the verses fill in for us, Um It says in verse three, then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years. It's a long time. As a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush. So the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. Mm. And then it goes on because remember, Isaiah is not speaking to Egypt and Cush. They may never hear of his messages unless they had um, representatives from Egypt and Cush in Judah. They're never going to see Isaiah. So Isaiah's message... Is for the people in Judah and Jerusalem who are trusting and hoping in this military alliance with Egypt and Cush, because they are known for their war horses. Cush specifically is known for its mighty warriors. There's historical evidence that there was um, um, what are, what's that called when you pay for warriors that are not mercenaries? mercenaries? Mercenary uh, militaries that coming out of Cush. Um, there's evidence even of perhaps in the Bible, um, Cushite mercenaries residing in Jerusalem. So Isaiah is giving this shocking message to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, do not trust in military alliances. And it's the same old message that we see all throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the covenant with Israel. And then we see Um, King David in the Psalms really bring that up. We cannot rely on flesh and blood, on men, on war horses, on our technology. We have to rely on God. So yeah, Isaiah went went around naked preaching to symbolize the fact that Egypt and Cush were going into exile. And this is what this was a humiliation tactic, a psychological warfare tactic that invading militaries did to captives. The people that they didn't kill, they stripped down naked and marched them it marched them back to their territory and often would march them through the streets of their capital in a victory parade. Right. Right? Um, so this was a warning to all of those officials and people in Judah and Jerusalem who were hoping in Egypt and Kush.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. Good that's answer. what I would say. Okay. That's good. I wanna I wanna turn the tables on you now and sure. ask you a question.
1: Yes, I've been reviewing it as you've been. Have talking. you? <laughs> yeah, I didn't even pay attention to it. Oh so, yeah. my word! I'm just joking.
0: Yeah. How rude! <laughs> How rude! <laughs> okay, Isaiah chapter twenty-two. Sure. Yeah. Um, specifically verse twenty-two. So, Matlock, what are the keys of David?
1: All right. <clears throat> so.
0: That show up in Isaiah twenty-two.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know what you. I know what you meant. All right, so first of all, this is a prophecy um against uh against someone. Anyway, so the point here that original uh, Elikim, the son of Hezekiah, is later Hezekiah's servant. Yes. Um and but he, and what God's saying here, in that day I will call my servant Elachim, and I will clothe him with robe, and will bind y- your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Yeah. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, none shall open. So sorry for bumbling a bit there, but the, the general consensus around this idea of key is that he has authority, status, and power yeah. in the house of David. Now this later gets used this the keys of the house of David. Later gets used as a type in the book of Revelation and a one-to-one revelation. So I'll I'll quickly go there and I'll read you that right now. And just so you guys can hear that for what this means. So in Revelation uh, chapter three, verse seven, this is to the church of Philadelphia, right? uh, From John and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. He writes, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, that being Christ, Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the only time the keys of David are used one for one. Okay? And other times keys are used. Yeah. But in terms of one for one, the, with the, or d- doors being shut and doors being open. This is, those are the only two times. And that is really in reference to Christ holding the keys, you know, once again, to the Messiah, as, as the Messiah, so the Messianic throne, the line of David, yep. to all the power of not just Jerusalem, as we saw in Isaiah, but New Jerusalem, which is to come. So that, so because of that New Jerusalem connotation that's tied to the keys of David, um, you have other keys that are kind of tied to this. So the keys kind of become like a type, mm-hmm. so to speak, of like other instances. So other times keys are used. I have reference here. Uh, in Revelation uh, verse 1, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 9, verse 1, and then chapter 20, verse 1, it's regarded as the keys, uh, as Christ holding the keys to hell in Hades and also keys to the bottomless pit yeah so this idea that christ is now since he was died he was crucified and descended to to hell and rose again um he now holds the the keys to that to death itself so that's huge right so that's one thing so the doors that no one can open or shut or close is tied to intermingled with that because god now has the keys to all of that or, or christ does on top of that We also have in Matthew 16, verses 19, that famous thing, uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound uh, on earth. Whatever you bind in heaven shall be loosed in in heaven. I said that wrong, but everyone remembers the the gist of it. And um, so that's used there. So right now the keys keys of, of David are typological and paralleled with not only the keys to Hades and hell and oblivion, but also the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You have this relationship here mm-hmm. that's being tied. And also to add more to this, the other time keys is used is in Luke 11, verse uh, 52. Mm-hmm. And that is used the keys of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And specifically here, it's he's talking about how the Pharisees have removed the keys of knowledge from the people. Right. So like they have been teaching false doctrines, basically. Yeah. And so now they don't have access to the keys of knowledge. And so what you have here is that like, and you remember here, if you teach someone falsely, right, mm-hmm. the people could actually... By teaching them a false doctrine, they could actually go to hell, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, You're giving them incorrect tools to understand the scripture. Exactly. Right? A correct tool would act as a key. It would give access to the wisdom of God. It would exactly. give access to understand what's being said, because keys are essentially access. Exactly.
1: Right? Open and closing. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. So by in, your point is by incorrectly teaching the Pharisees were denying access yes. to the scriptures to the people
1: exactly. So what you have here you have this like wonderful if you can map all those ideas together, is that like um, through Christ you have true doctrine and the true keys yeah. right to the keys of New Jerusalem to the keys of heaven uh, to the kingdom of heaven, and then also to be free because Christ holds the keys to hate to hell to yeah. be free from that. Um, On the other hand, those who uh, have taken away the keys or are subject to those things. So you have this real idea that, you know, Christ is holding those keys. So I don't want to get too deep into all the nooks and crannies about it. But I think that in a a very narrow way of looking at it, it's just simply, it's originally in Isaiah, it was regarding, you know, what's going to come with the the King Hezekiah Mm -hmm. and and his servant, right? And who will help him, help Jerusalem be restored however or be saved and delivered on the other hand what you have here in um in the new testament is that becomes that those keys for the house of david become a type because christ literally holds those keys yeah and they get used in different ways for yeah. binding and loosing yeah. uh, for the keys of knowledge the keys to hell and stuff like that but what's important here is that christ holds the keys yeah unanimously christ is the key holder um and so that's what's really important in all that. So, I, yeah. anyways, that's my gist of it. So I,
0: I kind of want to sum up what you're saying. Yes. And kind of like. It's pretty it,
1: sporadic. Yeah, ahead. no, I yeah. Wa- that's
0: why I want to sum it up and bring it back. Because yes. what you said is accurate. So, let's bring it back when we look at Isaiah chapter 22. The keys of the house of David are literal. They are an actual thing. They are a symbol of authority, right? Because we've got Hezekiah in chapter 22. Hezekiah is king of Jerusalem. He is reigning on David's throne. Then we have Shebna, his palace administrator. Uh, some English translations say royal steward. Basically his second in command was Shebna. So Shebna has a prophecy against him because he's become really proud. And Isaiah says, if God says through Isaiah, you're going to be replaced by Eliakim. And then, and then in that prophecy, we see what the, what was expected from the role of the royal steward from the second in command of Jerusalem. Um, he was clothed with a robe and a sash and had the king's authority. Uh, it's also said that he will be of Eliakim. This is what he was this is what Shebna was supposed to be, what the royal steward, what the palace administrator was supposed to be. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder, so on his responsibility, the key to the house of David, access to the palace, access to the treasuries, access, right? What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And then it goes on to talk about he will be a firm, a pig firmly driven into a wall, and all the glories of his family will hang on him. So this is a sure thing. Eliakim's going to be a good guy. Right. <laughs> he's going to be a good guy, and he's going to be appropriate. Now, it's really interesting because um, we have this role of Hezekiah, Eliakim, Eliakim, while Hezekiah is the king, Eliakim is like a father. So he's bringing godly judgment, right, into Judah and Jerusalem as opposed to a mother, which I would argue biblically brings wisdom, which is really interesting. But I don't want to kind of like go down that rabbit hole. I yeah. but, but then when we see... Christ talking about and and Revelation talking about God's kingdom. We have God the Father as king and Jesus Christ as the royal steward yes. having the keys to the house of David. He grants access to heaven. Yes. In heaven. He opens, he closes. Yes, and... and things like that And and the the apostles then, you know, when you when you go in and you look at that, it's really interesting because it becomes keys obviously become symbolic for access but uh, V- symbolically representing very real authority
1: yes as well yes exactly
0: yeah so christ's authority and our authority in the name of christ and all these good things yeah so in isaiah literal keys <laughs> or at least uh, symbolic of the literal authority of the royal steward and then yes. later on used of christ
1: yes yeah they become more spiritual and people keys. Of christ that's right yeah yeah i think that pretty much sums it up yeah yeah a bunch of layering <laughs> going on there, really exciting stuff. I like that. I love that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's really it really, really multifaceted.
1: So let me please hit you with one more. Yes. Okay. So this is regarding of your question regarding Isaiah twenty eight, verse thirteen. Why is Isaiah twenty eight, verse thirteen, an indictment? How is it bad to follow God? Thanks.
0: Okay. Let's go to Isaiah twenty eight. Right. Okay, so verse thirteen specifically says So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. Okay. So the question here is, well, how is do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, how is that bad? How does that lead to the next sentence, so that as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. Because after all, if they're following the covenant of God, if they're following, you know, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, shouldn't that be good? How would that lead them to falling backward, being injured and snared and captured? I think the answer to this uh, lies in the states of Israel and Judah at this time period. And it also, you know, you see it reflected in the rest of the chapter. Um, And essentially what I believe this is talking about is the lack of understanding. So following the law, following the tenets of the law, but having no idea why you're doing it and not having the heart behind it. Over and over in Isaiah... Um, And honestly, the rest of the prophets, the people are accused of simultaneously following the tenets of the law. So still offering their sacrifices, still fasting, still going to celebrate the three yearly festivals, still giving their tithes sometimes. Sometimes they don't give their full tithes, but still upkeeping that part of the covenant while simultaneously not only, you know, sometimes engaging in apostasy and idolatry, but also just living evilly according to God's morality. So lying, being unjust, showing, uh, giving preferential treatment to people based on things like status or wealth. Um, And that's just not what God required of people in the law. He required them to humbly follow him and follow them with their hearts, not just with their physical actions. So I think that that is why, and I, that bears out when you read the entire chapter, um, I, that's why a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there isn't going to work because it's just systemizing following the letter of the law but completely ignoring the heart of the law and not humbling yourself to follow God in spirit and in truth in in heart and in action yeah it's there's no understanding here you're just following the the laws of men written about the laws right. of God
1: it's only a little leaven just a little leaven but leaven's yeah. the whole lump yeah yeah so I think that um Yeah, that's a good answer and also the concept of there's precept upon precept right is like if you're just reducing this to just guidelines and principles as if it's not god's word and truth and that's commandful yeah um
0: it's it's like you know what god said but you have no understanding as to what that means for your actual life right
1: because when i hear precept upon precept as i I very much hear like a guidelines
0: yeah these are just kind
1: of guidelines you know, a little bit guidelines here. Oh, if you make a mistake, it's not a big deal. Just do this or whatever. And they kind of treat it like frivolously. Yeah. If
0: you just jump back to verse 10, it says, do this, do that. A rule yeah. for this, a rule for that. A little yeah. here, a little there. Yeah. Here's how you have to live your life religiously, but without the the, the spiritual follow
1: through. Right. No, I think that's just good.
0: Just action, not in truth. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's... Okay, Pretty good. That's
0: good. Um, I'm going to throw one back to you. Sure. Okay, so this one is from Laura and Jim, and it's pertaining to Isaiah 30 and Isaiah 34. Okay. And this is an interesting one. It says, they say, hi, do you think volcanoes happen to let us know the feeling of hell?
1: Okay. <laughs> By volcanoes, we, we mean erupting. Yeah, I eruption. think so. I think, I think the, the concept of, of yep.
0: liquid, molten right. rock... Right, hot. Okay, that's what I'm guessing. Yeah, he, fire. <laughs> smoke, okay, smoke, and then fire. you know there's there's so, poison that goes up into the atmosphere. I think
1: most people today would be like, "Well, of course not."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's what most people would think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm gonna go totally oh. off the okay, totally contrary to what people I think think. I'm gonna say <laughs> you're, yes. You're taking
0: it strange. huh? I'm taking it. Yeah, I'm taking it strange. I like I'm it. Say, All I'm right. Gonna,
1: I'm gonna say yes because strictly here, let us know the feeling of hell. So not just the sense of fire. What does what does fire do? What when God created fire? When God created volcanoes, okay, mm-hmm. what, what was the purpose behind it? What was the symbol behind these things that He made? Think about water. God creates water, and then through water He makes all things, and then He uses water as a sustaining force, but also as a destructive force mm-hmm. to destroy the flood, but also to show restoration, to bring new life and stuff. So all, those, all of a sudden, this water becomes a symbol, you know, of baptism. Of it becomes, uh, right so the water itself becomes archetypal of of our new life in in Christ. So it's like the symbols that God creates here are intimately tied to the, the general revelation that he created, the creation itself, are intimately connected with his special revelation. In other words, God knows when he created physical things that he was gonna that he was gonna the Bible was going to be written. So it's kind of like in a sense when you're talking about like fire, these things fire, water, these elements have, in my view, an objective symbol to them that's being revealed through the scriptures. Now, here's what I would say. Um, so, do, for instance, was did God create water with baptism in mind? I would be like, well, yes.
0: Right. right. So, I'm wi- I, I, hold on. So, I'm yes. with you in terms of the creation the universe yeah. is arranged in such a way to reveal not only who god is but deep spiritual truths about god and about the way things right. really are i mean w- we see the concept in romans we see that we see it all throughout the old testament the prophets often use the creation use different things in in the world to help explain um the way the spiritual world works we see it right. in the psalms we see it in the proverbs we see it in the prophet so Yes, I'm with you there. Okay. So continue.
1: Okay. So, okay. So
0: I just wanted to kind of Sodom like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sure.
1: Okay. In the scriptures. So some people say that it was a volcano, sulfur and fire come down, right? There's no
0: volcanoes there. Okay.
1: say. Okay. Some sure. People say sure. That. Sure. Okay. But the point here is that. <laughs> not into well, that. regardless of volcanoes, the general concept <laughs> here is. There is
0: a lot of tectonic activity there. You have I will say that.
1: fire and brimstone, sulfur coming down in this thing, yeah. which would be like, you know.
0: Yes. It's
1: happened in history. It is a
0: sulfurous I, region.
1: Right. And what am I thinking of? Uh, a pillar of salt. This happened in, um, shoot, um, that famous city in Italy that got destroyed. I don't know why I'm dropping it. Pompeii? You. Pompeii. Thank you. So it's like you have this idea where it's like uh, you have these like, moments of destruction. Right. Right? That happen and these natural evils that happen we would call them natural evils. But God uses it as a form of destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, And God uses it as a form of judgment, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a sense, and what is hell? Hell's always used to describe these fiery... Destruction. Fire of hell's destruction. Judgment. So judgment. So a lot of this stuff when it comes to fire, they they point to something else. Fire and Um,
0: brimstone and all that. Right.
1: And we see, so for instance, I think without scripture... You would have an intuitive sense about this but you wouldn't be able to pinpoint it down perfectly right but through maybe the,
0: general judgment
1: a general judgment but through the scriptures you're able to see that the, the symbols that are used the typological symbols used then become emblematic and symbolic uh in creation of the visible world become emblematic and symbolic of what god is going to do spiritually mm-hmm. so it's like so can fire can volcanoes, can uh, you know, fire and brimstone coming down, represent the feeling of hell? Well, they represent the feeling of hell. Are mm-hmm. they hell proper? No, mm-hmm. but do they give you this sense of judgment? Well, fire does.
0: And judgment that's greater than yourself. Like it's not, it's that, not a controllable force. And I think that's exactly. what things like volcanoes have going for them is they are not a controllable force. Exactly. And while there are warning signs of volcanic eruptions. They are not all they 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 still happen quite suddenly, well, and you're not always able to escape.
1: And right? the warning signs themselves, okay? Think about earthquakes, uh, and, birth pains. Yeah. Okay. Frequency. So it's like.
0: Yeah, I would say general judgment. I I'm leaning right. more towards this makes sense to me as symbolic of judgment or yes. re- revelatory of judgment of, that yes. is greater than yourself, rather than a, like hell as a place. Oh. Or like Lake of Fire as a place.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. But
0: I haven't thought super deeply about ha- about volcanoes. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> but but the, but the yeah. general concept I, I'm diving t- yeah. with. I'm yeah. In terms of like this can definitely. When when we contemplate the nature of them, it right. definitely gives judgment vibes.
1: Right. So I yeah I'm looking at this as more of like an open ended like volcanoes, fire like these things of these like, things of this yeah. nature. What do these give you the feeling of hell it's like yeah well it gives you the feeling of judgment right yeah so i think that um yes but does it specifically indicate hell or proper well it's like no i think that would come through special revelation of of god right uh but at the same time at the same time um you know that the judgment happens on this world mm-hmm. through that means mm-hmm. through like let's say forest fires or through volcanoes erupting you know judgment happens through those through that means then why not also the afterlife yeah so i think that you can rationally deduce through conscience and through you know mm-hmm. uh just the creation of this world that a hell could exist without special revelation um Of of Without scripture itself. So I think that you could make a case for it. So here's what I'm saying. I'm just trying to say, I I know some people would be like, oh, absolutely not. That's a silly, there's a natural world and there's just the Bible. Uh, These are all integrated together. So I, I'm not trying to,
0: uh, I'm going to say, I'm saying yes and no.
1: Yeah, possibly. I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying probably. I'm saying right. I'll give it a probable. I'm saying because well with a, a loose interpretation of the question.
0: Gotcha. Not, judge a, not
1: a rigid interpretation of the question, with the loosely with a loosely, you know, looking at it. Okay, Anyways. let's
0: continue this concept then and yes. move into our big question. Sure. Because our big question is you know, we've been reading Isaiah and it's he, Isaiah is lobbing all these judgments of God against various nations not just Israel and Judah. So Big question is, does God still judge nations in the same way described in the Old Testament?
1: Right. Okay. Um, for one, the prophets, how the prophets were judging Israel, it was very different from how God judges nations. So there's, there's two facets of this question. Right. It's saying how it's described in the Old Testament. One, how God judges a nation, I don't think changes. I think when something becomes so morally depraved, um, like it was the Amorites, yeah. that he will just judge them accordingly. Now it, it could be different. He judges so everyone so differently. Like some people, he judges Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone. The Amorites th- uh, through warfare, right? Yeah. Israel through warfare, being exiled. So they, everyone gets judged differently. In a different Agreed. way. Agreed,
0: yeah. We see Israel and Judah being judged based off of their original covenant with God.
1: Right. Yeah. So, but
0: the other nations are not judged based on that covenant with God. Exactly. But they are still judged.
1: Yes, they are still judged. So my point here is that like the way that the reason for God judging doesn't change. Mm-hmm. So that's important. Having said that, the way this comes about through like prophets I think is different today post-Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay, so... So how the prophets prophesied to the kings in in the CSA? Yeah.
0: I, I definitely think that the difference is that we don't have the Bible being written today. The only reason we know that the destruction, we know that Moab was destroyed. Mm. It doesn't exist anymore. When you go back and archaeologists look at the the remnants of, of these different cities, which they have, and it's it's so they found amazing things. Um, but there's always a destruction layer right? It's not perfectly dated. The destruction of Moab is is still, no one really knows when it happened historically speaking, Um, but they know that it did happen. So we know that all of these different nations were destroyed. The only reason we know to link the destruction of Moab with God, with the judgment of God is because Isaiah wrote it down. Right. Same with Tyre, same with um, Edom, same with the Ammonites, same with um, the Arameans, uh, Jerusalem, Egypt and Cush. Uh, like, all the yeah. only way that we know that the destruction of these nations were for a specific purpose, whether it was how the people dealt with Israel and Judah, or whether it was their pride, or whether it was their great sin, like the Amorites and the Canaanites, um, is because of the Bible. So I really do think that God still brings, who are we to say that he doesn't? Oh, I think he does. God still, he hasn't changed. He's still, he's still, you know, when, when, when God, the whole messed up situation with Sarah and Hagar and Abraham, okay? And Hagar goes away, she runs away and she's in the desert and she's gonna die and, and Ishmael's gonna die and God appears to her in his mercy, in this messed up situation, and he gives her a promise and tells her to go back, she names him the God who sees. Right. He is the God who sees me. That is recorded in the Bible, I believe because it is essentially true about God. He, it's proven throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, he is a God who sees. He is with, His creation specifically with humanity. And he will, I do believe, he will bring justice and righteousness. He judges in his mercy and in his truth. Um, So, who are we to say that he's not, that he's not still bringing judgment on nations? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, and then I'll say something else.
1: No, I agree. I was saying I don't think God. That's what I was saying. God doesn't change the reason for His. God's not changing how He judges. Yeah. God's judging the same way. Same way He's going to judge people. You know, come Judgment Day. It's not like He's changing His His right.
0: That's our great hope. Is like right now. There is nothing that we can do to bring true justice, to murderers. Right. What are we going to do? Kill them. That doesn't bring the same amount of no. pain. I mean, like yes, you can make a case for capital punishment sure, but it's not it's not going to bring back the person. It's not going to. We feel this sense of longing for something greater. Yeah. For for restoration, for true righteousness. Right? right? And and that's our great hope that God is in his mercy and in his truth will bring ultimate reconciliation and judgment. Judgment and yes. then reconciliation, I would, I would On say. On top of this, accurate.
1: as I was saying before, there's two edges to this question because it's in the way described in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So besides God, right, it's also through which, the means of which, I mean, mm-hmm. through whom he used, he prescribes the judgment. In other words, yeah. through Isaiah. The way Isaiah did it, like, for instance, we're talking about Isaiah being naked. You know, are we supposed to have prophets who are, you know, in let's say in Toronto, being naked to be like trudeau like judgment's coming upon you do you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. and uh, is that the way described in the old testament is that still continuing so so and this is something that's that's the other edge to this question so it's mm-hmm. not just a matter of you know what god does uh cuz we know he doesn't change it comes down to the way he does it now through humans um but
0: the but the what but, do you think? but god I would make the argument that God still would have judged the nations if his prophets didn't declare it. I think that it, it's a mercy that God had his prophets declare okay. it because then it, it it explains to us the character okay, so of God. To
1: add to your point, okay, to add to that, when Israel was judged mm-hmm. by Babylon and Babylon was judged by Cyrus, okay? Yeah. So actually not even Cyrus. Sorry. When Israel was judged by Babylon, there was no Babylonian prophets being like, God told me to attack Israel. Mm-hmm. They just rose up and attacked. They weren't pri- privy mm-hmm. to the information, but God knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So God let Israel know what was going to happen, but mm-hmm. no one else really knew, but in Babylon still was going to judge. And
0: keep in mind too, like,
1: A tool judgment.
0: Keep in mind too, when something was going really off in Israel, we see David inquiring of God. So God sometimes brought judgments to Israel so that David would reach out. Right. He didn't always proclaim first, hey David, I'm gonna start a famine because Saul tried to wipe out the Gibeonites and went against that covenant. Right. He let the famine start without announcing it from his prophets right. so that David would inquire of God and receive an answer right. from God, right? So there's, God's not obligated to announce his oh, for sure. judgments right. through prophets. Right. Um, and I think we really have to be careful. It's, 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 I think we really have to be careful when we see things like natural disasters or we see things and then we link it to something that we think mm-hmm. and then start proclaiming that because then we're speaking on behalf of God and we're, and unless you've gotten a divine revelation from God, well, I think we need to be careful how we well, say and that. And
1: there we go. So that's part of the supposed divine revelation occurs. Like is, so here's what, it, here's kind of the yeah. other edge to the question. So it's like, okay. So God is using people to speak on His behalf. Mm-hmm. So, is it like, of course, your point is completely valid, where you have God doesn't need to do this,
0: mm-hmm. but could He? I, I think absolutely. I think
1: so too. Yeah. So I think He could be using people still, mm-hmm. to, as described in the Old Testament, to, to speak to leaders, or whatever whether the leaders would listen is 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 now also that's different. Story. I
0: do want to say also that like like true prophets of God are proven. Yes. Right? They're not just like some esoteric. I'm gonna give you really general ideas. I'm gonna give you feelings and impressions. And like true prophets of God have a track record of accuracy. Yes. And of godly living. Yes. So it's not just some random person on YouTube being like, hey, I have a prophecy for all of Canada. Yeah. There has to be a proven track yeah. record, I believe. And and I think it can be a very dangerous thing, like social media now yeah. where I might have absolutely zero idea who this person is and where they come from. So how am I supposed to evaluate their character? How am I supposed to evaluate totally. their prophecy if I don't know who they are? If I don't, if I'm not in the body of Christ that they are in. I yes. think so it's really important for things of that nature to be evaluated and come from a community of believers. Yes. This is kind of a primer. We're gonna talk about this a lot more when we get to the New Testament, but right. Yeah, some I, opening thought.
1: Yes. No, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yes. I don't have like a firm like this is the way it should go. Like I just don't because I think that if God is using someone to speak to them mm-hmm. to speak to let's say a leader or something like that in the way like Isaiah did, yeah. Um, I just don't think it's gonna be like I can't be like this is how God's gonna do it. Yes. I I can't well, really box God in. We
0: even see we we even see in the Old Testament God pulling from people who aren't prophets or priests proper, right? Like Amos, who was a farmer or a sheepherder,
1: Yeah, shepherd or something, yeah.
0: Coming in and speaking as a man of God, speaking as a prophet. But again, he would have been a proven prophet. Otherwise, no one would have listened to him and he wouldn't have made it in the Old Testament canon. That's right. So we know that the prophets of the Old Testament, at least, were proven with a sign of the Holy Spirit.
1: And and there is a danger in that thus saith the Lord stuff where, like you were saying earlier about Everyone just pushing their stuff to online, and some people even try to. I've noticed, try to be like, "Well, I just had a dream," and you could say it as you will. And it's like, okay, hold on, Ooh, hold dude, on, hold on, right? It's, yeah, that's like back
0: up the bus. Yeah,
1: yeah, you have to know for sure. Like, this is the whole point of it being right. This is like there is no question that God has spoken to you to, to say these things, and that you move forward on them. Um, so, when God gives you a prophecy, it's essentially you're commanded to follow through and to, to speak it. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there is some of that happening Where people are just kind of like Oh, you know, th- there's a game afoot And that really makes the whole thing It's the reason why sensations don't like things And I can understand Because this stuff happens It
0: feels so loosey-goosey it's, That everyone's going to lose control And there are examples of people losing like going off the rocker Yeah,
1: they completely off the rocker and then, and then they act like Oh, we could just, you know Prophecies aren't really a big deal We could just, you know Experiment a little bit Did you get it right this time? Did you not get it right? Anyways the my point in bringing this up is that, like, the Old Testament, the, the way it's described is so firm, and it's it's clearly the prophets. Like you are saying, they're living a godly life. The apostles themselves, who are like the New Testament prophets, okay, were living godly lives, sac- self-sacrificial lives, uh, discerning, as Romans 12 says, the perfect will of God. So there's so much of that godly living that needs to happen, I think, as a prerequisite before it's like, oh, you're just like constantly... Like you know, the outpouring of all this stuff. Anyways, I've been rambling, but yeah. That's
0: okay. All right. So I think we've I think we've answered does God still judge nations in the same way described in the Old Testament? I think we both believe yes. Who's to say that he's not? Although it's not being recorded. I think could.
1: I think yes, God, yes, God himself, but the way he does it could be the same way, but not always the same way, as described in, in the Old Testament. I have
0: no, okay, yes. But I yes. I think that yes. God is still judging nations. We will all stand before the throne of God and give an account for our lives. I do still think God is rendering judgment on nations, uh, although we are not privy to his reasons in the same way as we were when the Old Testament was being written. But yeah, lots to discuss here. What do you think? Importantly, what are your thoughts on all of these questions that we discussed today? Pop them down in the comment section below. Malik and I love reading them and we always try to type a response when we get a second, but we do read every single one of them. So uh, until next time, happy reading and studying and we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much for watching.